If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 11. This is one of those Sundays that might be easier uh, to simply grab your insert uh, and follow along in your insert rather than your Bible or your iPad or your phone. And the reason I say that is simply because of the passages uh, coming from three different sections in the book of Joshua this morning. It's been a couple weeks uh, since we've been in our study of this uh, book, a book that we've been working through chapter by chapter. And today we come to uh, really what is the heart of the book. And the part of the book of Joshua where a lot of the detail that we've seen in chapters 1 through 10 as the writer has gone through Uh, the full account of of how Jericho was seized and the full account of how the Gibeonites deceived, a lot of that detail has disappeared. And now in this middle section of the book of Joshua, we find, um, in large measure, we find summaries of of conquest and, and descriptions of how the land was divided among the tribes of Israel uh, that now have, have, have walked and, and are taking over this land. And, and it may feel like, it may feel like a, a quick span of time, but it's actually uh, several years that this conquest is taking place. Uh, we're not talking about a matter of weeks, we're talking about five to seven years is, is the full extent of the conquest that we read in Joshua. And so, the book generally divides, Joshua generally divides into two parts. Chapters 1 through 12 is the conquest of the land, and then chapters 13 through 24 is by and large the settlement of that land and the distribution of the land. There are, in these middle chapters, there are lots of names, lots of places, and we're not going to address them specifically. We're going to address them more generally. And today, specifically, we are going to basically take the whole middle section of the book of Joshua and try to distill its treasure into this one sermon. And to do that, I've chosen just three brief passages that you see in your insert from chapter 11, from chapter 19, and from chapter 21, just a sampling of a much larger corpus of history that I'd encourage you to read at some point. Uh, Go home and read chapters 11 through 21. More, certainly more could be said about these chapters than I'm going to say. But at the very beginning of this study, I I said up front that I wanted this to be a summer study highlighting the book of Joshua. And so, Lord willing, that's what we're going to do. We're going to cover this big middle section of the book and then uh, go to the end of the book and cover a few loose ends and, Lord willing, finish Uh, by the end of next month, by the end of August. And so, that's where we are. That's where we're going briefly. If you would, if you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word and follow along uh, Joshua chapter 11, chapter 19, and chapter 21. Listen as I read. So, Joshua took all the land the hill country and all the Negeb and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland 
from Mount Halak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon toward Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction in their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Joshua 19, verse 49. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By the command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnasera, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land." Joshua 21, verse 43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Two truths that I'd like us to focus on this morning for those of you who are taking notes, for you kids who are following along with maybe the clipboards Two truths from this entire middle section as we take a step back. There were a reality in Joshua's day and that also are shadows of what is to come for us. And the first one is this. The sovereign God comes to judge. The sovereign God comes to judge. Sovereign justice will come. You know, to his credit and certainly to my benefit, I only remember my father yelling at me once. It's not because I didn't deserve it many times, but 
He's a very patient, self-controlled, soft-spoken man. And only once in my adolescent maturity when I had taken my fists to my older sister could my dad take it no longer and he whisked me off into my room and in righteous anger he raised his voice to me before justly punishing me to the point of tears. I remember it vividly. I remember it like it was yesterday because it was a fearful thing. A fearful thing in all the right ways. See, this picture that we've been studying, particularly that we hear about this morning in these various passages that I've picked, this entire conquest, it it paints a picture of our God. And the words that we just heard and the conquest in general, I think, and I think you would agree with me, paints a picture of our God that is fearful. So I want to ask the question, how, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with some of these verses that we read in Joshua 11 specifically? See, as we pick up the story, Israel has Essentially, they've driven a wedge into the promised land since crossing the Jordan. They have taken Jericho. They've taken Ai. They've made an alliance, although unintended, with the Gibeonites who deceived them, one of the most significant cities in the region. And then as the end of chapter 10 records, they now move into what is known as the Southern Campaign as they begin to take the cities in the hill country to the south. And then after that, in chapter 11 and in the chapters following, they they move to the north and they take the cities in the north and they're confronted with the first time ever by horses and, and by chariots and by military might that they had not yet seen. And yet, it doesn't matter because the sovereign one, the Lord, Yahweh, is with them. And so it doesn't matter what kind of military might they're facing, they are rolling over their enemies. And as the Bible says, and as Joshua chapter 11 says, there is no peace. All are devoted to destruction. Mercy is gone. There is no mercy shown. Everyone is being struck. Everyone is being put to death. And then maybe the hardest phrase of all that we find in chapter 11 is this, hearts are hardened at the Lord's prompting. How are we to think about this? Particularly that last part. I mean, let's be honest, that rubs us the wrong way. And it's important because this this hardening that that the writer of Joshua speaks about in chapter 11, it undergirds the entire plot line of the book. It's the reason these people, after all they heard about Jericho, about Ai, they're still coming. They're still fighting. They're still thinking that they might have a chance against these people. 
It's because they're hardened. And this isn't the first time we've heard about this concept of hardening, is it? Those of you who know the Bible, who know the Scriptures, know well that it brings to mind Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, where the Lord says specifically to Moses about Pharaoh, I will harden his heart in order that he will not let my people go. You see, to our modern sensibilities, this this is indeed troubling. Because if God is the one who hardens, then He is the one who is responsible. Not man, right? And the Bible says, no, that's not right. Both these principles of God's sovereignty... The fact that he rules and and reigns over everything, even the thoughts and the intentions of man, and the reality that man is responsible for all that he thinks and says and does. These two truths the Bible teaches and stand side by side, seemingly unreconciled, and yet neither can be denied. God is sovereign, man is responsible. The term for this is an antinomy. J.I. Packer, well-known Christian writer, talks about antinomies, and he says, this is easily said, but the thing is not easily done. Our minds dislike antinomies. We like to tie everything up into neat intellectual parcels with all appearance of mystery dispelled and no loose ends hanging out. Hence, we are tempted to get rid of antinomies from our minds by illegitimate means to suppress or to jettison one truth in the supposed interests of the other for the sake of a tidier theology, and yet the Bible won't let us do that. God is sovereign. Man is fully responsible for his actions, period. And so when this truth comes out here in the book of Joshua, here in the conquest of Canaan, and indeed in all of Scripture, this is not God twisting man's arm in order to get him to sin. This is not God twisting the Canaanites in order to get them to fight. This is God giving them over to what they are already craving to do. Listen to to Romans 1, 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Theologians sometimes call this a judicial hardening. This is sovereign justice falling upon those who deserve it. And so when those who 
don't want to believe in God, those who want to suppress the truth about God, those like the famous atheist Richard Dawkins writes, the Bible story of Joshua, this is a quote from Richard Dawkins, the Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds. He couldn't be more wrong. I'm hesitant to put any kind of analogy on the conquest of Canaan because this was a unique thing, but if we want to compare Israel's war and what is happening here, it would be more comparable to the allies seeking to dis, disthrow, to overthrow, excuse me, to overthrow Hitler and his evil empire and his evil regime and his slaughter of innocents. Remember weeks ago when we were studying an earlier chapter, I made the comment concerning Yahweh's patience, Yahweh's patience with the inhabitants of Canaan. The Lord had said way back in Genesis that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. As we come to Joshua, specifically chapters 11 and following, we learn that now it is. Now their iniquity is complete. They have not turned from, but they have persisted in their idolatrous and perverted worship. And so as one commentator succinctly states, the Canaanites' day of grace has passed. And so Yahweh gives them up. He confirms them in their resistance and by that giving up leads them to their own destruction. Sovereign justice has come. That's the first truth I think we see from the book of Joshua and from these verses in particular. And here's the thing, it is still to come. Sovereign justice is still to come. As we think about applying this truth, this first truth to our lives, I want to do so in three ways. And the first way is this. We must let God be God. As you digest this truth that the sovereign God comes to judge and, and, and the, the antinomy of God being sovereign and, and, and man being responsible in the midst of that sovereignty, in the midst of that hardening, I remind you that you must let God be God. Because the God that we gather to worship today, the God who has saved us, is ultimately incomprehensible to us, though He has revealed Himself to us. Ultimately, He is incomprehensible, and yet He is good. He is perfectly good. And so while we might be tempted to sit in, in sovereign judgment over this statement and over the actions that we find in this book, we cannot and we must not. We can wonder we can question, God, help me understand this. Help me believe these things that, that are seemingly contradictory. But at the end of the day, our hands 
must go over our mouths. Remember when, remember when Job, when Job got a, a bit sassy with the Lord, to say it mildly. He got a bit sassy in his limited understanding of who God was. And in Job chapter 38, we read, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And then there are Paul's more pointed words in the book of Romans. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. And you say to me then, Paul says, you say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay. Let God be God. Secondly, as we apply this to our own lives, I want to think more pointedly about the fact that sovereign justice is still to come. Because this, this story, this part of redemptive history this picture of conquest is a picture of a day that is still to come, a day of judgment that will come on us all. And just like then, those who live in rebellion to their Creator, those who persist in idolatry, grace will pass them by and the hand of justice will come heavy down upon you. So this is a passage that says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to flee for cover from that sovereign justice to the Lord Jesus. Because those who trust in Jesus, those who trust in the one who endured justice for sinners, for them justice will pass them by and grace will fall upon their heads. See, this passage is a call away from unbelief to the salvation that is offered in Jesus. Yes, it's a fearful picture of God, but it's fear made to drive you to His Son, to the greater Joshua. But one more thing I want to think about as we apply this first truth to our lives. You who know and love the Lord Jesus, which I know is many, if not all of you, you who are confident that you are hidden from judgment. There, there is no condemnation for you on that day of judgment because you are in Christ Jesus. Can you long for the day of reckoning? As we think about sovereign justice, can we long for that justice to come? I've been thinking about that some this week. And you know, I think we can. Not in a morbid, harsh, sinful way, 
But brothers and sisters, we don't have to turn our heads in embarrassment about what happened here. The people of God, the people of Israel didn't turn their heads in embarrassment. They reveled in divine justice pouring down upon their enemies in order that they might receive what was rightfully theirs. We read in the Psalms, Psalm 94, verses 1 through 3, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? And so, people of God, when when humans transport other humans in unventilated trucks to the point of death, when perversion of every kind is normalized in the name of, of love and of tolerance, when innocent babies are killed by the thousands daily, when the name of Jesus can't even be spoken in places on this planet, we can and we should long for the sovereign justice of our God. Because He alone deserves the honor. He alone deserves the praise. And His name ought to be exalted from every mouth. Yes, we long for grace. Indeed, we long for grace. We long for repentance, even from our enemies. But ultimately, we long that righteousness would rule. Sovereign justice has come and will come. That's the first truth I'd like us to consider this morning. The second is this. A new kingdom awaits. A new kingdom awaits. Tacoma, Washington, Birmingham, Alabama, Morristown, New Jersey, Lookout Mountain, Georgia, Escondido, California, Poway, California. What are these? Well, to you who are listening, they're just places. They're just cities. They're towns. They're geography. But to me, to me, these are the places of promise and of grace These are places that are part of my story. Tacoma, Washington was where God gave me breath into a family that worshiped and served him, a covenant family. Birmingham, Alabama is where I received the sign of that covenant, baptism, and was set apart as the Lord's. Morristown, New Jersey is where for 18 years I was nurtured by a biological family and by a spiritual family. Lookout Mountain, Georgia is where my faith became rooted and turned into a calling to become a full time shepherd in Christ church. Escondido, California is where I was given the tools for a life of ministry, and Poway, California was where my gifts first flourished in the church in a capacity that they had never done before. You see, to most of you, to those of you who don't know me in particular, these are just interesting, maybe, cities and states, but to me, this is meaningful geography. And so as you're paging through Joshua, as you're looking at chapters 11 and 12 and 13 and 14, you see chapter after chapter of of people and places. This is not simply a dull archive for history's sake. As one commentator said, this is 
promise geography. This is the itemization of God's goodness to His people. So you need to hear all these places, all these tribes, these peoples. You need to hear this as as God's people would have heard it. As the wounded soldiers from from the tribe of Gad, for instance, would have heard it. The reality is finally here. God has done what He has promised. And here it is. Acre by acre and and detail by detail and and act by act, a new kingdom awaits. And then there's verse 45 of chapter 21. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God has been faithful God has been faithful to his covenant and and God's people now just simply need to take hold of what is theirs and walk in faithfulness, something that will be hard to do and we'll see that later. You see, these chapters, this center portion of Joshua contain basically three steps in allocating the land. There was the land that was promised by Moses already to the tribe of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And then Joshua divided the rest west of the Jordan, first at Gilgal and then at Shiloh. And there's much detail in the names and the places that we could explore and even pockets of conquest that still need to be accomplished. But the overarching theme is that God has given His people their inheritance. They have their place. The days of wandering, the days of fighting, the days of war are over and rest has arrived. And so what does this have to do with you and me? Well, first of all, real practically, I think there's an example here. One that we find in in other places of Scripture as well. The cataloging of God's goodness. Just read Psalm 105, Psalm 135, Psalm 136, and listen to the detailed recounting of all that God has done in the midst of His people. It's a reminder that we would do well as a people as individuals, as families, as a church, to recount, not just on Thanksgiving, but to recount what God has done. Listen to the words of one commentator. He says, if we, the church, were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness act by act and detail by detail, many of us would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our despondency comes from failing to see how much God has really achieved. A new kingdom awaits. There's also an example of the actions of God's people here, I think, that we can apply to our lives. We are called to do, in a sense, what they have done, what they are doing. We are called to announce the coming, the arrival of a new kingdom. This is our task's 
This is our task, to tell what is here and to tell what is still to come. Revelation eleven fifteen. the voices cry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. You see, at the end of the day, it's this fulfillment of promise for us this culmination and fullness where ultimately our hope lies. People of God, a greater inheritance, a greater final rest is coming for you. Hebrews 4, we read about it weeks ago as we have been reading through the book Hebrews 4, 8 through 10 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, the inheritance, the rest that we see the people of Israel receiving from Joshua it's just, the, it's just the dress rehearsal for the rest and for the inheritance that you are going to receive through the greater Joshua. And our, our rest and our inheritance is both a person as well as a place. Listen to these promises. Psalm 16, 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then Jesus' words in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you will be also. So brothers and sisters, there's great rejoicing from God's Word here this morning. In Jesus, we rest from our labor. In Jesus, we we possess His Spirit of witness. In Jesus, we have a home. And in a world that leaves us, at the very least, wanting, often frustrated, at the evil, at the wickedness, at the prosperity. There is a day of reckoning coming where justice will be served, where an inheritance will be given, an inheritance not even worthy of being compared with the struggle and the weight. And so what is our stance? We come into the house of God. Going back to the call to worship, we come into the house of God and we recalibrate and we refocus. And like Psalm 130 says, we wait for the Lord. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in His Word, I hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning for 
the truth of your word. Father, we admit, we confess our struggle to understand as much as we want to understand the relationships of these truths that are taught by the Scriptures, and yet we, we ask for the faith, we ask for the trust to believe and to live in response to these things. Oh, Father, we give you thanks that there is a refuge for the coming wrath. There is a refuge for sovereign justice. And in Jesus, we not only have shelter, we not only have covering, but we have an inheritance. We have a hope. Oh, Father, may that fill our sails this day. Fill us to overflowing that we indeed might proclaim to those around us that there is a kingdom that has come. There is a kingdom that is coming. There is a consummation that will come. And that through that proclamation, you Holy Spirit would do your work in the world. Oh, Father, this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.